Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah show kicks off this evening. We have used Mumble almost every night since the day that this show has went on the air. And in that time, I can think of maybe two or three times when I wasn't able to connect to the server or if it wasn't working or whatever. For whatever reason, tonight, a night when both Steve and I are remote, and we were counting on being able to use Mumble for Steve to join us, Mumble fails. And I have no idea why. So, Steve is here. Steve will join us as soon as he possibly can. And I will give Mumble a swift kick in the pantalones uh, to get it fixed. Oh, I hear a Steve. I have joined after some technical difficulties. Hey, you know what? This is you rising above. This is two technical guys. If we couldn't find a way to connect, that would be a pretty sad thing. Welcome in, Steve. Thank you. Uh, and uh, enjoying the weather down here in Wisconsin for a change. Oh, yes, this is an improvement from South Dakota. So, Steve, I did a I did a naughty thing this week. Do you want to hear my naughty story? Of course I do. All right. So... Sunday night rolls around and my daughter comes out and she does that little thing that kids do and bats her eyes at me and goes, Daddy, I want to watch the football game that Taylor Swift is in. So after a little bit of a, what do you mean the tail? Why would Taylor Swift be playing a football game? A little, you know, I did that for a dance for a little while. Eventually I couldn't shake her off. She's, 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 she's stuck on this idea that she just has to be able to watch the Super Bowl. So I start thinking to myself, all right, self, I don't know what I'm going to do. And so I, I do a quick Google search and I, I eventually land on the fact that there's a couple different streaming providers that are providing access to the Super Bowl. And one of which is Paramount, seems to be the path of least resistance. And so we go down the process of entering all the payment credentials and blah, 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 we get it all set up. All right, fine. It's playing on the NVIDIA Shield. Everything is happy. What I didn't know at the time was that when you download the Paramount app and you tap on the thing that says, I would like to start a free seven day trial, it automatically attaches itself to whatever Google account you're signed in on your TV. Now, some of you are saying to yourself, self, why does that seem like a problem? It just goes to his Google account. He's got his payment information there. It shouldn't be a problem. Well, my problem is I've been in this process for the past few years of tr trying to de-Googleify myself, and as part of doing so, all of the Google accounts that are on my TV don't have any of my real information attached because why would a television need to know who I am? Answer, they don't. So it was under like, you know, Martin Simpleton, you know, just a bunch of made up stuff was there. At bedtime, we decide to go put the kids to bed. And as part of that, my wife attempts to sign into the Paramount app on the kids TV so that we can free up the living room TV. Oh, no, says Google. That looks like fraud. Fake person, fake address, different address than the billing thing. Not happening, boss. And it shuts the entire Google account down. Well, that poses three problems for me. Problem number one and most critical is that now my daughter can't watch the football game, so she's stuck in the living room. Fine. Whatever. Second problem is I've now lost access to the Google account that was on the TV, and it wasn't it wasn't a normal Google account. It was, you know, it was designed with QWERTY optimization in mind. That is to say the account was like Q-A-Z-W-S-X-E-D-C. Look at a keyboard if you want to see why that's advantageous. And so it was designed to be quick to sign in on a TV. It was not designed to be used to anything else. So now I'm locked out of the Google account that's on all the TVs. And the worst part is I can't even really contest it because technically it is a violation of the terms of service because I didn't use my real name. And so my whole night kind of fell apart, and the cloud experience was terrible. And even when the app was there and was paying, it was a terrible experience. It didn't really work right and crashed a lot. And largely what I walked away from is I was like, you know, I started my Sunday thinking to myself, I don't really like cloud. I don't really want to get into this. And I left Sunday twice as convinced that that was the right decision as when I started Sunday. So, you know, it, it's funny because... I've run into a lot of hoops that you have to go through 
in order to do things on the up and up. So I have a subscription to Nesson, which is a New England sports network, right? Mm-hmm. But you're supposed to live in New England in order to have that. So I use a VPN to get on it um, because I, I like the sports casters and stuff like that. And that is technically a violation of the, the terms of service. I should be using the ESPN Plus app and all of the rest of that sort of stuff if you want to do it, a, you know, completely above board. And it's like they, may, they put in these barriers for entry where I could literally just go type into some search engine, you know, I'm looking for this sports game, and you will find the stream, like you, tons of links to just stream in without paying for it. But the people that are actually trying to do this somewhat legitimately, uh, you know, these barriers are actually just simply encouraging the piracy. Mm -hmm. No, I'll tell you what it encouraged to me. What it encouraged to me is I'm never doing this again. I told my wife the next time we want to do this, we're just going to we'll go. We'll go. You know, there's churches that have them available. There's, uh, you know, sporting events and and uh, and sport restaurant themed things or whatever. We'll do one of those and and whatever. I just it's such a because because so I didn't really finish. But so I'm locked now out of my fake Google account and I've lost access to all my TVs, whatever. I'll deal with it. I'll I, I will adapt and overcome. However, comma now, I can't even cancel the Paramount subscription because it's tied to the Google account that I can't sign into. And despite my multiple efforts to reach out to Paramount, I've gotten absolutely nowhere. And eventually, I just gave up and canceled my card because after doing a little bit of googling to find out, hey, does Google actually continue to charge your card after they've closed your account? The answer to that question, my friends, you'd think you would think that if they shut an account down for fraud, surely they're not charging anybody's card based off of something that they suspect is wrong. But you'd be wrong. They do continue to charge your card or so. I'm told on the internet. So I just canceled the card. And the, the, the thing that really bites the magic bullet about that, well, that was the card that was tied to a whole bunch of other things. So now people that I actually wanted to get my money aren't going to get my money in an effort to keep Paramount and Google from taking. Oh, what a mess. I'm never doing cloud again. It was a terrible experience. Don't recommend zero out of 10. Do something else. Go, go. I'm just I'm, use net, whatever. There's got it. There's a, there's a better way. There's just a better way. You nobody, I don't need this kind of negativity, this kind of, I don't need this in my life, Steve. Well, you know what you can do? You can start self-hosting your own infrastructure, and uh, maybe we can help other people do the same. What do you think? Boy, is that a good idea. Our first email tonight comes in from David. David writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. I'm having issues with NextCloud. One iOS device are absolutely useless when trying to connect to sync. Apple shuts down the network for the second the screen is off or if the app isn't in front and center. The other is my all-in-one install has Python installed but thinks it isn't. Is there a way to fix the Docker install? I tried the repair option, but it couldn't fix it. It only seems to make any AI stuff not work, even the assistant. So, Steve, I know you have some pretty extensive experience working from iOS, not necessarily for yourself, but for your family members that rely on your NextCloud instance. How did you solve this problem? Yeah, so the David is absolutely right. What is happening is... Uh, Apple has decided that third parties don't get access to any kind of syncing. And so they will, on some random counter, just simply shut things down. This impacts, you know, NextCloud. It impacts SyncThing. I understand it impacts things like Image and anything else that wants to sync in the background. They just simply kill that process. So the only way to do this is to actually have the app open, like David says. Now, what we did is for any phones that needed to do the syncing on a regular basis, um, there is, I'm going to use the term automation. I can't remember what the actual term is in iOS, but essentially there's an automation section that allows iOS to take a certain action when something has happened. So when the phone gets plugged in, the very first thing that happens is NextCloud pops up immediately. So we have it, we have the phone looking for, the event being plugged in, and as soon as charging is happening, NextCloud pops up to the front and center and does its syncing because exactly like David said, if it's not front and center, you can't guarantee the sync is going to continue to work because it seems to be completely random. Like it might be two or three days where it'll be fine, Mm -hmm. and then there are three or four times in the single day where the syncing just doesn't work. And so we ended up working around that with this little automation um, if you do some searching around, you'll be able to find out um, exactly how that works. I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. I read it once. I implemented it. It worked. I put it down and never thought about it again. So, um, 
And, That's how we dealt with iOS. And just out of curiosity, how did you go about setting up um, the the syncing? Is that is it just install the app, or is there a little bit more to it? So, I mean, Nextcloud has its own app, and you go ahead and configure things like automatic syncing or time syncing or those sorts of things, um, in to, in, including things like, can I sync when I'm using mobile data? Do I have to be on, you know, a Wi-Fi? All that sort of stuff. Mm. That's built right into the Nextcloud app. Okay, but you didn't need to install any third-party software to to make it work. No, all that this happened. All that happens here is the it's the automation is built into iOS itself. You actually have to go fiddle around in the Apple settings, and you can actually. Um, you'll find guides. There's plenty of people who have run into, not specifically with Nextcloud, but this same thing where something, Apple is killing something in the background and how do I make sure that it continues to run? There's plenty of people out there that are uh, sharing their knowledge on how to get around that problem. Okay. Well, I mean, good. I'm glad that we have an answer. You know, I'd be interested, and, and maybe this is outdated stuff, but a while back, I was working with the NextCloud instances, actually for a client, and one of the things that came up with them was they wanted to get their contact syncing in iOS. And at that time, there was a uh, effectively, I wouldn't go as far as to say an add-on per se, but you had to go into the account settings, go into other, add a card DAV account and a Cal DAV account. Is that, uh, maybe that's outdated information, no longer necessary? No, that that is correct. But the difference with that type of thinking is any time that you use um, one of the things that, that would hook into that, it automatically does it. So, like, if you opened up your calendar, you open up your contacts, it's automatically pinging and doing the sync in the background. So okay. you don't have to do it for those sorts of things unless you need, like, minute-by-minute minute type thinking. The the stuff that we're talking about is, like, photo sync or file sync and all, the, all of that oh. sort of stuff that's that. Um, we moved off of iCloud into you know, Nextcloud. Okay. Well, we'll have a link for the the contact sync to the extent that that's uh, to the extent that that's helpful, and then uh, hopefully he can give the um, your suggestions a try. And then, I, I, as far as the container thing, you don't host Nextcloud as a container, do you? No, I don't. I roll it as a traditional PHP app. Um, I looked at this, I gave it some thought, but I'm not exactly sure what's happening. So there's a bunch of information that's kind of missing. I don't know which Docker, uh, like which container this is. I'm not really sure if if the container itself, like so if this is an xCloud container from the company and it's not finding the Python installed, that, that says to me that passing is wrong, right? And, and unless you're going to sit and tear down the container and build it back up yourself, you can't really do anything with that. You have to go and report the issue to whoever has created the image because essentially the image is like an app image or anything else where it's a kind of a binary. It's pushed up and if you pull it down and you unpack it and you run it, it will be exactly as the creator intended it to. And so if there's some sort of passing problem or other other system problem like that, there isn't anything you can do short of remaking the container yourself. Okay. So let us, you know, let us know if that answers your question. If you have additional questions, let us know. The other thing is, you think this would be an, a good time to recommend the NetCloud all-in-one, um, effectively their answer to not just trying NextCloud, but kind of pushing it out and, and having a thing that you can just kind of drop and have set up and, and run? If you're looking for something quite as heavy, like the all-in-one container is exactly what it sounds like. And it's not even an all-in-one container. Just if you'll allow me just a slight aside, I actually yeah. dug into the technicals of how this works. So for anyone who's mildly interested in, in containers, what's happening is there is a, a bootstrap container that gets fired up. That's what you pull down. Like if you do like a, I don't know, Podman pull on the Nextcloud all-in-one, it starts a container, and that container is essentially – going to go out and start pulling other containers. And what it actually is doing in the background is it's passing a bunch of unit sockets around to these various containers once they pull down. So when you pull the all-in-one container, what's happening is it then 
goes and creates a bunch of sockets on your local system and then makes a bunch of calls out to Docker Hub or wherever they're storing your image saying, like, give me the Redis one, give me this one, right? And then essentially it, it grabs all of those and shoves them all together and it builds it on the fly for you. So it's, uh, there's nothing technically wrong with that. It's just I found it interesting when I was exploring how is it actually doing this because it's not like it's not a series of containers. Essentially, there's one container that orchestrates the pulling and the communication of all of the containers. And the only reason I bring this up is because it's kind of a black box, and maybe mm -hmm. that's okay for you, right? Because it's a it's it's equivalent in my estimation to running you know curl sudo bash. Right, like mm -hmm. that's that's essentially what you're doing, and it's start installing everything, and maybe you want everything. That's just something to consider, like because Nextcloud can be pretty lightweight or it can be pretty heavy depending on what all you're uh, installing with it. Absolutely, that doesn't answer your question. Right back in live at asknoahshow.com. We'll take your feedback that way. Joshua writes in and says, "Hey, no one, Steve." As mentioned via a matrix DM, I appreciate your tips for starting a new IT job. Fortunately, as they have been in need of IT support for a long time, I'm everybody's favorite right now. I have one direct question and then some thoughts about where I'm trying to steer the ship. My question, as discussed in the Ask New About booth via Linux Delta, what's the simplest way to utilize hardened encryption on unconfigured Windows or Mac OS devices. Say I have a working folder with pretty much everything that I might need while troubleshooting somebody else's device. If I have a Samba share set up on a Linux or personal device when I need access to files I have encrypted somewhere within the local office, I could A, include a Windows portable app that could decrypt PGP armored files, B, carry around a flash drive with a public key needed to decrypt those files, but all this seems a bit complex. I hadn't heard of anything in Noah's booth Chatter suggested Marlin or Lux shared drive decrypting via TPM or using a Tang server. Tang seems easy enough to set up the server, but the client I haven't worked with. So a, a couple of things here. I, I want to kind of back out and, and I'm going to I'm going to take a stab at what I think you're trying to do. And then we'll address your question as you wrote it in. So it sounds to me what you're trying to do is develop a when in an emergency don't panic break glass take here right the kind of thing that if you get hit by a bus and the next it guy walks in and says gee what what was joshua doing how do i get into okay here's the thing that you go to here's the master source of truth with all the things so if i'm reading that right then i follow your logic that well geez if i'm going to put all the keys to the game in one place i better dang well encrypt it because i certainly wouldn't want somebody to get their hands on it so that part makes sense to me now this is where you and I diverge a little bit because I'm starting to lose track of why we're doing things this way. If if I had that sort of information, I don't know that I'd put it on a Samba share. Samba shares are a the the way that we the easiest point of entry, or the easiest path to get things to other machines. In this case, though, we don't necessarily want to do that. We want to make it available to us and anybody that works on the administration team but we don't necessarily want it available on the internet the second thing that would concern me is you better believe if you ever have an attacker on the network absolutely hands down without a shadow of a doubt one of the things they're going to look at is what samba shares are available and can they get to them so you know it's going to be a target before you ever put the first piece of information so all of those things would lead me away from putting this kind of information on a samba share now if you said to me noah i'm absolutely convinced for one reason or other that this is the path i want to go if, if 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 that's your your standpoint, then then there's a couple of things that you could do. So the first is you could use something called PG Tool. Full disclaimer: I've not used it, so I don't know anything about it from the standpoint of how well it works, that sort of thing. But based on my laser focused googling, I I can tell you that it appears to be an open source tool that allows you to encrypt and decrypt PGP files. Which, if you stored those on a Samba share, you should be able to do that. Now I'll be honest with you. As I think through that, if I was in your shoes and that was my administration job, the idea that I'm going to decrypt a file, open it, get the information I want, make the change I need, re-encrypt a copy, that sounds like a whole bunch of a pain and then you know what, I don't, I don't want any part of that. So if it were me, I would, I would do it a slightly different way. One thing you could do, store critical information that is to say an unencrypted copy of documentation, IP addresses, subnets, maps, uh, network diagrams, any of that stuff, as well as some sort of encrypted file like a key pass database, something like that with the actual sensitive credentials. Put all of that 
inside of a drive and have that in the brake glass when an emergency brake glass grab here kind of a thing. Now you can have a working copy on your laptop. Maybe once a week you dump to the, the brake glass copy here and then I would probably offload that sucker once a month offsite. That's how I would do what we would call business continuity to make sure that if you get hit by a bus, somebody else can handle it. The other thing that you could potentially do if you're if you're kind of looking towards the track of I really want it available via a server, one thing you could do is is leverage the native encryption built into ZFS and you could manually load or unload the key into the ZFS data set and then you could expose that data via Samba, NFS, whatever, however, SSH, however it is you want to get to it. Um, and that would allow you the ability to get to the data when you need to, but then encrypt it when you're not getting into it. I don't like that option quite as much as having everything just local and encrypted, but it opens it up to where it's not in one central point of failure, accessible from a bunch of different machines. You get the idea. And the third thing that you could do, which is kind of the direction you're going with the PGP, you could use encrypted containers. So you could use something like a Veracrypt or I don't know how we were talking about this before the show. I'm not, we're not real sure how we would do this on a Windows box, but you could use something like CryFS or, or KDE Vault. That's really only going to work on the, on the Linux side. Something like Veracrypt, though, will allow you to go Windows, Mac OS, whatever. So th th those are the easy or th those are the most straightforward ways that I can think of to, to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish. Steve, you had some thoughts in the way of you wish there was more information here and you think you could help them better if there was. So ultimately, we don't really know what exactly we're trying to accomplish here. So the, the writer writes in and talks about putting a, like a portable app that can decrypt the, the PGP files. I'm not exactly sure why you would do that. Like, I'm, I'm not quite clear what it is we're trying to achieve by having something publicly accessible that is encrypted that also has an easy way to decrypt it. To me, that would say you might as well just put up a file with a zip that has a password on it, like a zip file that has a password on it. You have about the same level of protection because if you put up something that um, you could take offline and run John the Ripper against, there's no real reason why you would be encrypting it in the first place. Like mm -hmm. It's going to stop the casual person but the casual person's also going to be stopped by a zip file that has password on it. Mm -hmm. Anyone who's serious about it, if you've got, you know, your PGP key or some easy way for decryption to happen, that also means that somebody else has an easy way for this to happen. And I'm not exactly sure what, what we're attempting to achieve by this. I'd say that the flash drive is your safest bet, but again, I'm not exactly sure why are we posting files to an endpoint that are encrypted. I can't quite understand what exactly we're, we're attempting to solve with this. Encryption, really, what it does is it buys you time, right? What you're t banking on is that the encryption, let's just say for the sake of argument, you're using an encryption passphrase that's 26 characters or greater, um, leverages the entire key space and doesn't use any dictionary words. Okay, great. We've got some basic security to work with. At the end of the day, as great as that is, what you're really banking on is that nobody's going to have access to that file long enough with enough computing power to be able to brute force the key before and then insert a number of different directions that you could go. But that's really, really what you're doing is you're buying time. So if I'm understanding what you're saying, Steve, you're saying, well, basically you're giving the attacker an unlimited amount of time because they could just copy the file and then whatever they happen to get into that password, get into, they're be able to brute force that password. Whenever they happen to do that, they can just come back, log in, they're able to get the data. So you're kind of setting yourself up as a sitting target. And worse, you won't know somebody has that file. You won't know somebody's executing that attack because they just copy copied it off site and now they're working with it. Yep. Yep. And so ultimately it'd be nice to know what problem are we trying to solve by doing this? Because it's possible that there's a better solution if we knew what exactly we're trying to solve. Um, one of the things that I've noticed working with clients is they'll ask me a specific question about how do I do it like this? Mm. And then when you start digging into it, it's actually not someone just told them this was the thing that they should do, but it's disconnected from what actually would serve them the best. So maybe they're chasing their tail because, you know, they were told that virtual hosts and Apache was the best thing for them to do, but maybe a reverse proxy would be better, but you don't know that until you start getting at like, what's your use case? What are you actually trying to accomplish? A hundred percent. Your questions entertained 
live at asknoahshow.com. Would love uh, your questions. So, uh, Jeremy, or Joshua, excuse me, I hope that helps. If it doesn't, then write back in. Give us some more information, and we'll try and help. Jeremy writes in and says, Hey, Noah and Steve, I'm wondering if you know any websites to find moonlighting gigs around Linux, Kubernetes, etc. I'm looking for additional work outside of my full-time gig as a Linux pro working to a large company. Best, Jeremy. So, okay, first things first before you go any further, make sure your company is cool with it before you do anything else. I have watched so many people tank their careers. Well, not their careers. I've watched so many people tank their current employment gigs because they stepped outside of the bounds of what their employer was comfortable with. And in some cases, it wasn't even a function that the employer was wouldn't have been cool with it. It's that they hid it from them and they lied about or actively lied. That's where it gets to be real problematic. So the, the first thing before you do before you go any further with this, have a conversation with your boss. Hey, thinking about doing some moonlighting. Is there anything contractual? Read your contract if you have one. Is there anything that contractually stops me from doing that? Are you guys cool with it? Any problems? Anything I should stay away? Most companies are going to tell you. Are you working for one of our competitors? No. Are you working for one of our suppliers or customers? No. Knock yourself out. They're not going to care. Um, but I, w I would at least have that conversation. And if you can, get it in writing that they don't care. Okay. Assuming you've done that, where do you actually find the gigs? So in, the, in, in any business, not just IT, but certainly in IT, it's all about networking. It's about who you know. Who you know and who you're connected with, that is what's going to get you the, well, those are where you're going to establish long-term gigs anyway. As far as short-term stuff where to get your foot in the door, I, I guess what I would recommend is start by looking for things in the community. So start by looking if there's if you're wanting to get into uh, Kubernetes or Linux administration, go hang out in you know, in, in sysadmin chats and go hang out in uh, Kubernetes communities. Be active on the forums. Be active in the chat rooms. Those are the way that you're going to bump into the people that are going to say, hey, does anybody know who's looking for a, and then there's a side gig. The way that the Linux Delta Matrix server got started, there was a system administrator by the name of Paul, who does not live in the United States, and he was in Synapse Admins, and I, he was helping me back and forth, and we were trying to troubleshoot issues, and as I learned about Matrix, eventually I figured out, oh, I've really set some things up wrong, right? Like, I'd set the server up, and the server name itself was matrix.linuxdelta.com. I now understand that to be bad practice. Didn't know that at the time. You don't know what you don't know. But as Paul was kind of helping me through that, I went, oh, okay, this is really great. And eventually, I just reached out to him. I'm like, hey, man, listen, you clearly understand this stuff top to bottom. I've clearly screwed a bunch of this stuff up because I'm ignorant about it. Will you come alongside me and will you help me set this thing up and will you walk me through what you're doing uh, step by step and allow me to eventually take over it because I, I would like to do this, but I'm not at a place where I think that I can and I need the thing more than I. And he was very good about that. He's absolutely. And so, you know, was it expensive? Yes, it was expensive, comparatively speaking, but good help typically is. And he was able to get the server set up. He was able to provide me complete documentation. He was able to walk me through. And then as time went on, it started with, hey, this isn't working. Hey, this is that. And he would just fix it for me. And as time went on, it slowly started to get to where I would poke in and I would fix some things or I'd get out over my head and I would say, hey, I don't want you to fix it. I just want you to tell me what it's what's happening. And, and, and he would do that. And I learned from being able to do those things. And so I would encourage you to start there. The other thing is I would be cognizant of job boards. So a lot of communities will have job boards. I would go to the communities that you're looking to be a part of and look for job posting or job boards. And those, I, I think, will really help you kind of get your feet wet. Steve, anything to add to that? No, just the networking is the, the most likely place. As hard as it is to establish that, most of the time those types of side gigs end up flying under the radar because they're they're essentially filled before anybody actually posts them anywhere because mm -hmm. it's like, oh, Noah asks Steve, Steve asks JT, and JT knows somebody, and that chain of trust is good enough to, to start you down that path. So ultimately, you want to make connections and I suppose find a way to demonstrate that you, you uh, understand the material to someone so that mm -hmm that chain of trust is established because, you know, Noah trusts me, I trust JT, and JT knows that you can do this thing, we're good. Mm -hmm. 
Yep, that's 100% accurate. And I, uh, you know, as I kind of think back to it from the employer standpoint, if I take my hat off and look at it from that direction, uh, you know, we've hired people from the community. Every one of those people, though, I have had contact with them before in some other realm. They were actively involved in Ask Noah or in the chat room or helping out with something, and then we needed to hire somebody for a thing, and we're like, hey, we know somebody. We already know the kind of work they do. They already have somewhat of a relationship with us, and we just offer them and say, hey, we'll give you more money to do this thing. And I, I'm, I'm a real fan of that because I feel like I'm hiring passion. I'm not paying somebody for a job. So I, the, 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 networking is really the way to go there. I would say just become, just be active and be vocal about what you're doing. You know, the more people you tell. So now everybody that listens to this show just heard that Jeremy's looking to get involved in some side gigs for Linux administration and Kubernetes. So do you have some system administration work that you would like to hand off to a responsible community member that is looking to do this on the side? Jeremy might be the guy that would say yes to that. And so, but, but I would do that in, in other communities as well. And I would reach out, like I said, I'd be active. The, 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 the squeaky wheel gets the oil. So the more places that you are and the more you're paying attention and you're looking for where that opportunity uh, meets your preparation, that's where I think you're going to have the best success. Eddie writes yeah, in you and wanna... says, go ahead. Sorry, I just wanted to tie off with that. <clears throat> you want to make sure that you can demonstrate this. I know I said it before, but I, um, I recall having several conversations with people in the Geek Lab, so our little chat room, and one of them's put a lot of work into Grafana and monitoring and all of that sort of stuff. And just the fact that they were showing like, hey, I did this thing and here's some stuff, like that stuck in my mind. And so then if I end up having questions, I will remember that and I will go back to that person. And that's sort of the same thing as like, if you really want to get a job doing Kubernetes or whatever it is that you want to do, go do something interesting and then show people like, hey, I did this thing, can I get some feedback on it or whatever, because somebody out there will find that interesting and will engage with you. You can write into the show live at AskNoahShow.com. We'd love the opportunity to take a crack at your question. Eddie writes in and says, hey, guys, I love your show. Thank you for everything you do for the community. A few shows ago, you talked about how you got an access video doorbell to work with Home Assistant. Do you have a guide on how that's actually set up? I have a Reolink video doorbell camera integrated with Home Assistant, but I don't know how to actually get Home Assistant to ring me when somebody presses the doorbell and be able to talk them through Home Assistant. Thanks in advance, Eddie. So Steve, I'm gonna kind of pivot to you on this one because you've done a lot of work with some real link devices and you said that a lot of the sensor data and devices or things on the camera are very accessible through Home Assistant with that Python library. Yeah, so it has been, now I don't have the, the doorbell. Uh, I am considering getting one, but from the cam my experience with the real link cameras, they expose so many sensors that I would be very surprised if there was not a way to do this. Like inside of Home Assistant for the for my camera, I can turn on like the infrared, I can turn on the light, I can move it, I can speak through it. Like I can actually, because there's two-way audio, I can listen to the audio. So if I can do this on my camera, I would be surprised if there isn't a way to do this in, the, in Home Assistant for the, the doorbell. My only kind of caveat there is you do have to go hunting around for it. Sometimes the, the sensors are weirdly named or like you have to play with them to understand what they're doing. But at least for me, when I imported the Reolink camera via the Reolink integration, there's just a slew of sensors there. So I would be shocked if, if the doorbell didn't have a way for you to do this once you uncovered the correct sensors to interact with. So from his perspective, that probably looks what? Like triggering an automation rule that says, when this sensor happens, send a push alert to so-and-so's phone? Yeah. So what I have happened is when the Reolink camera detects motion in the motion zones that I've set up during specific times of the day, it sends both my wife and I via Telegram a notification. So if I can do that with my camera... I'm sure that you should be able to get from like, hey, there's a door, like there's a button push. I'd be shocked if it's not, if Home Assistant is not tracking the fact that the button is actually being pushed and then you make an automation based on that trigger. 
Um, one thing I so okay so let, let, let I'll, I'll break it down this way. So the first to directly answer your question, are you willing to write a guide? Absolutely. I, I in fact your your timing couldn't be better because I as twenty twenty four is going to be the year of documentation for NOAA. I, I'm just I'm going to force myself to learn and practice good documentation habits with everything I do as my goal as my personal goal for myself. So yes, I'd be happy to put a guide together. The the short. TLDR version of what you're asking is with the access phone, and I assume that the real link is probably similar, there are really three components to that doorbell. The first is the camera portion. The camera portion is just an RTSP stream. So it's the same as virtually every IP camera under the sun. If it's a ONVIF compliant camera, it's just going to spit out an RTP stream video video stream and you get video. So that that's easy enough. The second portion, what you're talking about, how do you talk to people, that's done with a SIP server. So the doorbell itself is a SIP client. You assign it a SIP username and password, and then you give it a SIP destination. That is to say, so let's say you have a 3CX instance or an asterisk instance, and you've created extensions. Let's say you have extensions 901, 902, 903, 904, 905. Your doorbell might be, let's say, 910, and it dials 901. Or maybe your doorbell is 910, and it has a ring group of... I don't know, let's say 850, and in the 850 ring group, it di- the 850 ring group dials 901, 902, 903, 904, and 905. So everybody gets rung at the office and can answer, hello, hi, I'm so-and-so from UPS at the door. And then the third aspect is the door control. So the door control is done with GPIO. And if, well, there's actually two ways to do it. There's IP control, there's GPIO. Well, GPIO is the more understandable one. We'll stick with that. So... When the phone call comes in, it's a SIP call, you answer it, it's the doorbell, and you answer it, and hi, it's Joe with UPS, can I come in and drop the package off? Yeah, no problem, Joe, one sec. And you can assign a a DTMF key, when you press that DTMF key, it sends a signal back to the doorbell, says, hey, this user would like to unlock the door, that then trips a set of closed contacts, and then you can trip your access control system. So if you have... Uh, well, I, I suppose you have to have an access control system for that to work. But uh, so, th- so that's way one. The second way, which is a little bit more proprietary, which is that if you have an access door control system and you have an access doorbell, then it will just go through IP. You don't have to do the GPIO. The advantage there is obviously if somebody really knows what they're doing and you can unlock the door by sharding two wires together, well, there's nothing really stopping somebody from taking a sledgehammer to smash the doorbell off the thing, grab the two wires and short them together, right? So and, and so, there, so there's two ways to accomplish that. One is doing IP, which will go directly from the doorbell to the access control system. Second way you can do it is they actually make a little add-on module that will give you the, con- the closed contacts as a separate unit that is connected via the network. So you can separate those out and put that in a control room, whatever else. So three components, SIP, RTSP camera and GPIO. It, those are the three things that you need to set the, the doorbell up the way that I did it. The way that Steve is talking about doing effectively, you're going to get notified. But as far as establishing that two-way communication, I'm, I'm also unclear as to how that would work. I, I presume that there'd have to be some sort of intercom functionality built into Home Assistant that is, that is also supported via the camera. But I'm not real sure. Um. Your questions are a necessity of the show. If you don't write in with questions, we can't answer them. So the way to do that is the following. Send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. You can do it during the show. You can do it before the show. You can do it after the show. Now, the other way that you can participate is go to the Geek Lab. You can go to geeklab.ninja. It will redirect your web browser right to the place you have to go. Immediately, you will be able to see the chat and follow along with the discussion. Should you choose to click on the button that allows you to create an account, You'll be able to create an account, and at that point, you'll be able to take Marlin, our question bot, marlin colon linuxdelta.com, and ask your questions to him. He will take his robotic routine and dump the questions right in front of Steve and I's face next episode. Niche distros. This is something I have a love-hate relationship. I love them because oftentimes a niche distro is the distro is the distro is the distro that will do something very very well. But at the same time, they're kind of esoteric out there, and they leave you with kind of a special snowflake. Steve, I understand that you were looking at a kind of a niche distro distro. Why do I keep saying distro distro that is for gaming based off Fedora? Tell me about it. So I actually went looking for. 
um, just distros in general, something different. I've been running Arch for forever. I've run Gentoo before. Didn't really feel like running Ubuntu, but like I was looking for something interesting, but not not NixOS, which is what everybody seems to be recommending. So I kind of went down the rabbit hole of um, looking for interesting things that people are doing that isn't just you know putting some lacquer over one of the traditional desk, um, one of the traditional ones like a Fedora or something like that. And I came across, I'm going to call it Nubara. I don't know actually how it's pronounced, but it's a Fedora-based distro. But what makes it different is it's designed by the folks that do Glorious Egg Roll for Proton. And so this, was a, this is a distro that this person does for themselves and a few family members um, in order to push out all of their changes and stuff like that to them in kind of a seamless way. And so I thought, I'll give this one a spin because at the end of the day, it's based on Fedora and I can put my Red Hat tooling on it, but it also has some nice automations, optimizations, pardon me. And so that kind of triggered my thought process of, well, when when is a, a niche distro really relevant in today's day and age versus when is it going to cause you heartache? I, I wanted to use one called Gobo Linux, and it seemed really interesting because the way that it works is it puts all of your applications in one directory very similar to macOS so that at a glance you could, you could see what you have installed and what versions because it puts a folder for each one of those sorts of things and you know uses some magic to make sure that you're calling the right binaries. The problem with that is while some aspects of Global Linux look like they continue to be sort of bumped along by the community, the ISO hasn't been revved since 2021. And when I looked at that, I'm like, well, does this mean it's abandoned? And I was at the spot where, you know, I'm looking at investing a little bit of time into this. And if it is abandoned, what happens if I run into problems in this niche thing? Because, you know, I'm in the middle of Wisconsin right now. If something went wrong on my laptop, I need to be able to fix it because I'm not anywhere near home and I'd rather not do a wipe install. So um, <clears throat> that kind of led me to asking Noah, well, what does, what, what does Noah think about the idea of niche distros? No, of course, the idea here is Noah is the self-proclaimed Walmart of Linux users, <laughs> right? Where doesn't doesn't need very much, which probably means he just carries an Ubuntu ISO around with him and just slaps that down everywhere. You're not far off, Kubuntu, but yeah. Um, so I, I would start here, right? I would say 95%. First of all, like, what is it? 70% of statistics are made up on the spot. So this absolutely qualifies. But I would say 90 to 95% of the time, I find myself using a niche distro and I think to myself, man, this would be a fantastic add-on, right? Like, I don't get why... Well, I don't want to pick on anything in specific, but oftentimes you'll have these very purpose-specific distros, but they're all built on Debian or Ubuntu, which leads to the question, well, why not just let me have an add-on package to Debian or Ubuntu that I can add, and it will just turn my Debian or Ubuntu distro into whatever the thing that you're building an entire separate ISO for. So that's that's my immediate leaning. There are, of course, some exceptions, right? That would be a difficult thing to do with something like TrueNest. That would be a difficult thing to do with something like CloneZilla. It wouldn't make a lot of sense there. So there's certainly some things that, that those appliance-like distros that I think make some sense to have spun off. But largely, I feel like that should be a package. Now, I understand that you had kind of a similar thought process, but that really isn't possible with this spe this specific distro, is it? No. So the, the very clear on the website you can't just take Fedora and turn it into this because they do a lot of crafting for some of the specific packages. And um, I've actually found the experience to be quite good out of the box. Like I like the theming that they did. Like normally I'm mm -hmm. not like, nah, theming, right? But I like the theming that's happened. I like they have both a KDE and a, and a GNOME extension, like a GNOME um, version and stuff like that. But essentially for the... Um, graphics related stack stuff because this this the focus of this distribution is like proton and gaming and, and stuff like that uh, it it supplants the traditional fedora ones and fedora has long been known for not 
being the easiest when it comes to gaming because it used to be NVIDIA drivers were a bit of a pain and like mm -hmm. a whole bunch of stuff. Um, and there's just, there's some niceties here. So like, for example, I installed Steam and they, he even has like his own, I'm going to call it a store. It's, it's very similar to the Monte pop-up where it's just like, hey, like here, install these things that you might think about. If you install Steam from that, it does some nice stuff. Like it puts some, some themes on Steam, but on top of that, it goes in there and it turns on things like um, Steam Play and then enables it for quote-unquote unsupported games. Just little things that you have to do for yourself anyways. So, no, I know you're a big gaming guy, but I'm going <laughs> to explain this for you anyways. <laughs> what that does is it allows you to play Windows games on Linux through Proton if you toggle those options. And so it's one of those things that Steam doesn't do that by default, but you can go in and toggle them. And it just does it for you. Not only that, it's got a really nice interface for which version of Proton you want, whether it's the official ones or some done by the community or the glorious April or whatever. And it's just all tied really beautifully together. And so there, there are some nice CDs to it. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, your timing on this is really righteous because I, I've been dealing with my, uh, effectively my son and his friend who have really been getting into gaming. And I actually kind of, I, I loosely looked for a distro based on gaming. I found that there is a project that basically tries to reimplement SteamOS, um, but it it didn't really solve any of the problems that I was looking to solve. So, I, and I didn't know about uh, Nobra Project. So I'll have a link for Nobra Project in in the show notes, podcast.asknoshow.com. But yeah, I mean, largely, I like the idea of niche distros, but I share your concern. You know, you get into this special snowflake era, and then all of a sudden you have problems that you just wouldn't have anywhere else. So I'll give you an example. I was repurposing, I think I talked about this a few weeks ago, I was repurposing some uh, some computers for an organization that wanted to do some things, but they didn't have a huge budget to buy new computers. So we were repurposing, that almost always means Linux, they were cool with it, it was great, all the things. So. I'm in the process of getting everything set up and we go with elementary OS because they were previously using a lot of Macs. Now we were repurposing some little think centers, uh, basically the tiny little Lenovo like microcomputer type deals. And what I found was operating system installs, all the drivers are recognized, everything works, things are great, life is going well. Oh wait, elementary OS does not allow you to install Debs by default. It doesn't know what to do if you just double click on them. So okay, I work around that. Fine, not a problem, but then I find out that the Focusrite 2i2, a USB compliant audio device that has worked on literally every other distro that I've plugged it into to include Fedora, Ubuntu, Debian, Arch, doesn't work on elementary OS. Why? Don't know. It doesn't work. So elementary OS comes off, Ubuntu goes back on, starts to get set up, everything starts to work. And again, it just kind of reemphasizes, man, I wish I could get a regular Ubuntu distro that was just working and I could just add a package on that would give me the elementary OS desktop that would give me the dock that would give me all the little polished cool things that would be really great didn't have that option so I'm okay with it or I like it for appliance based stuff I'm a little so-so when it comes to using it for just about anything else. Then I start to get into the the realm of, well, why not just go with something standard? The counter to that, of course, is, well, Endless OS is very much a, a, a niche distro, and I think both you and I are over the moon about it. Yeah, and it, it's one of those things, like you said, it, it can be completely hit or miss. Um, my own little uh, tale, so my wife and I have started playing World of Warcraft, and Years ago, I installed Ubuntu Mate on her laptop because it had hybrid graphics and, and they had, Ubuntu had done a lot of work back then making the hybrid graphics work really well. And I was like, I'll deal with this on Arch. You, you just, like, here's a nice little widget sort of thing. And so it's been like that. The reason why I say that is because I installed World of Warcraft on Arch and there's a package, there's actually a package that says like World of Warcraft dependencies or something silly like that, right? Install that mm -hmm. and done. You launch the game and whatever. I go, I go to do on Ubuntu, you install it, it's blank, like it just fires up a blank screen. And you're just like, I don't know what that magic did. And like Nubara, for example, again, didn't have to do anything, just worked right out of the box. So like the, the niche distros can have their place, especially when it's something like that where... It took me, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes to hunt down every one of those little dependencies that, that the Arch package just pulled in 
Whereas in Ubuntu, it was, it was a bit of a faff. And so it's just, it's one of those things that they can absolutely have their place. And it, it, it's, I guess it's still up for debate in 2024 as to how relevant they remain. Yeah, 100%. I think they're always going to be there for that, that appliance-like thing. I guess we'll see where they wind up over time. I have a prediction, Steve. You want to hear it? Yeah, of course. My prediction is eventually we're going to get to a place where it won't matter because things will become immutable. We'll eventually land on, here's the stuff that talks to the hardware and does all this stuff, and that'll be kind of like the tank, the the slow and st- maybe not slow, but the, maybe it's actually fast-paced. Fast-paced, moving, but it provides a consistent platform for everything else to kind of build on top of, and then eventually we're just going to get to containerized apps and everything will kind of run up here, never the two shall meet, never the two shall conflict. And I think that will open the door wide open to niche distros because you'll be able to build in a consistent way a bunch of niche things, but they'll all follow some sort of rudimentary standard. Hmm. That'd be interesting. I'll, we'll I'll see. see. We'll talk in five years and see how all that's going. Right. So I went through a the EMS migration to move our matrix instance from EMS to my own self-hosted system. And I have to tell you that it was a process. So the pros, first, EMS did a great job of getting everything I needed to do to get the server moved over. Second of all, they responded quickly to questions. And third, their documentation was stellar. The downside. I didn't have any insight into what hardware they were using. I had no insight into how the resources were being used, and it left me guessing as to what was going to be good enough. So I've done two of them. The first one, a small organization, less than 10 people. They relied exclusively on Matrix for their office communication, but that meant that all of the rooms only had staff from that organization. It went better than I thought it was going to. In fact, EMS, to their credit, didn't shut the instance down the day that they said that it was going away. So they left it up long past that date, which was greatly appreciated by us. What I didn't know, and I now know, know, is that federated messages you want to shut the old instance down before you start using the new one. Didn't knew that, didn't know that, made a mistake. In that instance, federated messages just continued to work and it almost acted like a high availability server. And I was able to migrate it onto a server that cost less than 50 bucks. Now the second one was our altaspeed.com one. That's the one that I use on a day-to-day basis to make sure that work, you know, that's how I work. And although we're a small organization, we have heavy power users. Additionally, we've been using Matrix longer than we've even had the dedicated instance, meaning that we've got people in some very large federated rooms for community involvement and those sorts of things. The migration took a lot longer the second time. It left the EMS EMS instance running, which I at this point learned was a terrible idea because it totally busted federation. And it, it screwed it up the rest of that day and most of the next morning. Now, we're smart people. We were able to figure it out. I have smart people on staff. They did most of the actual work. but And the documentation says, if I had bothered to read it more carefully, to point the well-knowns first, then kill the old server, then provision the new server. The problem with that is you have to take the communication offline. So I've, I've taken a lot of lessons. If you find yourself in this boat, if you had an EMS, EMS instance hosted and you're looking for someplace else to park it to, please reach out. Email hello at altaspeed.com or head to altaspeed.com, click on the contact link or call us. We'd love to get in contact with you. The music in our ears means we're out of time. I thank you for joining us. We record this show every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. You can get the entire backlog at podcast.asknoahshow.com. We're back next week. Have a good week. Have a good week.